following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. It's important to, right at the very beginning, um, say this. Uh, We oftentimes think of salvation and discipleship as two very distinct things. You know, the first step is to get saved. And then once you're saved, then you can make a a decision uh, to be a a disciple. And uh, some of you may recently have been involved in the whole lordship salvation debate. Um, And it's an important question. And as we see this passage, um, I think Jesus would say... Uh, and I think he teaches here clearly that, that to, to be saved is to be a follower. Right? To be saved is to be a follower. You don't get to get saved but not follow Jesus. Right? Not an option. Uh, but that, re- that creates some problems we'll talk about in a minute. But first let's read the passage because it is a hard passage. Right? It's a very hard passage. So let's see what Jesus says in verse 25 of chapter 14. Uh, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, As I said, there's a bit of a shift in this passage. And uh, Jesus, it says now, is speaking to the crowd. um, uh, And he is back on the road to Jerusalem. And he's got his heart and his intention, his will set on going to Jerusalem, going to the cross. Uh, but a huge crowd is following him. Um, and uh, the context of this passage, if you remember last week, we looked at the great banquet. And in the parable of the great banquet, Jesus really throws open the door to all who will come, uh, who will accept the invitation to enter into the banquet hall and sit at the table with him. But if you remember in that story, uh, those who were originally and initially invited didn't come, right? They refused his invitation because there were other things that uh, were more important to them at the moment, right? 
And so on the heels of that, even though the shift, is, the, the, the shift of his attention is now more on, on disciples rather than these relu- religious leaders, what he teaches is really following up uh, that parable. Um, and he says that, yes, all are invited, but if you were to accept this invitation, it comes at a great price. Right? Anybody can come. Anybody is welcome. But he says that it's not, uh, it's not simply showing up, that it requires forsaking some very significant things in your life. Right? It means, he says, to, to follow me, you've got to hate your family. Hard words. You've got to hate your own life. You need to take up your cross, or you cannot be my disciple. Uh, the reason I believe that discipleship is, is inter- intertwined and deeply connected with salvation is that the, the parable that he just gave on the, on the banquet and all the parables over the last three chapters have been pictures of salvation, entering through the narrow door, entering into the great banquet, accepting Jesus' uh, invitation. Uh, to be in fellowship and communion with him. All pictures of the salvation that we can gain through relationship with Jesus. And he says here again many of the same things. He says, uh, come, follow me. But to do that, to be a true follower, to be a disciple, you've got to leave some things behind. And, of course, this is where the problem comes in. This is where the whole lordship salvation debate, and it's an important question. Because the question is, is our forsaking family, our uh, forsaking our own life, our own sacrifice, is that actually a work that contributes to our salvation? And, of course, we believe that Jesus did the whole work. We just celebrated in communion the reality that Jesus paid the full price. Ephesians tells us that uh, it is not by any works that we have done that we are saved, it is a gift of God. It's completely of His doing by grace. So when Jesus says these words, if we tie discipleship with salvation, it sounds a lot like works, right? It sounds like, well, you can get saved, but to get saved, uh, you've got you know, you to be a person who makes great sacrifices. And if you don't make those great sacrifices, you won't be saved. Uh, that would be works. That would be a salvation that comes through something we do. Uh, of course, which, which is, we don't believe that. So to get around that problem, a lot of people have separated salvation from discipleship. And it kind of goes like this. Well, yeah, you get saved. It's completely a work of God that has nothing to do with our obedience, our commitment to follow Jesus, our intention to be uh, walking with him. It's just by grace, right? And that's true to, a, to an extent, but it misses really full picture of what salvation is. But it makes it easier to do this. What you do is you say, well, you get saved by grace, and you don't have to do anything about that. But after you get saved, you've got to make a decision if you're going to really follow Jesus or not. And so what we do is we have churches full of people who think they're saved, but they're really not serious about following Jesus. I think Jesus has a problem with this. Okay, I think Scripture and Jesus would say, no, there's no such thing. You cannot be just a Christian who is not a disciple. Okay. Well, so how do you get around this problem? Right? What is, how do you unpack that? How is it then that our obedience in following Christ is not some kind of works? Well, let's see if we can get at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. 
And I'll, I'll give you a disclaimer up front. I always uh, want to be careful to do this. I, I'm going to give you an interpretation on this passage that is not the normal. In fact, all the commentaries I've read kind of interpret in a different direction. Right? So just know that. Okay, I might be completely off the wall, and it could be just heresy. You can burn me at the stake afterward. But you can, before you burn me at the stake, think about it, okay? Um, so so, so here's, here's what Jesus is saying. And the first part is quite easy, and this everybody's on agreement on. And it really is uh, what is often com- oftentimes termed the cost of discipleship. And Jesus gives three, three costs, three things that are involved in you following him. And the first one, he says, you've got to hate your family. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Um, so to follow Jesus, right, to be entering into the banquet, is you've got to hate your family. Now, uh, that's very strong words. And of course, if we take it in the wrong, if we give the wrong meaning to those words, there's, there's problems beyond just the lordship salvation debate. And the problem is, you know, Jesus in other places says you need to love your parents. Ten Commandments says love your parents. Um, uh, so Jesus is clearly not saying here hate as in despise your family. Uh, and the problem for us as Westerners comes in that we don't really understand, we only really understand love and hate in one context. And that is, for us, love and hate is an emotional connection. Right? That's, that's how we define rather exclusively what love is. Love means I feel a strong emotional connection to somebody. And hate means I really feel a strong not-like for somebody. Facebook language, right? We've got like and not-like, right? Um, and that's how we see love and hate, as this strong emotional connection. But for... Uh, for many uh, countries in the East, uh, including, I think, Thailand and, and much of Asia, they, they have another context. Not that that's not true, but they also have another way of viewing love and hate. And it's not about an emotional connection. It is really about uh, one's loyalty, right? One's duty or obligation to family, right? Um, and, and in this context, uh, it doesn't mean that we dislike somebody. It just means that we have chosen to to detach ourselves or to change our loyalty from one person to another. Right? And uh, in, in these contexts, in, in, for example, in the Old Testament, that would be labeled a form of hate. It was, uh, we, would, we would use the word forsake, right? You forsake your family. And the idea is that uh, in, in Asian contexts especially, there's a strong sense of duty or loyalty to your family, uh, and to honor the family, which is uh, an absolute core value, right? that is to love. And if you do anything that in any way dishonors or is disloyal to your family, it's viewed as, in a sense as hatred. And so we see that uh, often here in Thailand where uh, people, you'll share the gospel with a Thai person and they, they will believe the message. They will believe its truth. They will like its message. And they will deeply desire to uh, put their faith in Jesus. But, but when it comes down to it, they will say this, but I can't because why? It would dishonor my family. And they understand that to follow Christ would mean to break off their first loyalty to their family. And in essence, they're not willing to hate their family in order to love and follow Jesus. Right? And that was really the context of the setting in, in Israel in Jesus' day. 
Now, of course, for us, mostly in the West, we're far too individualistic for this, and we just don't honor our families that way, right? We honor, we honor our families by our presence. You know, you're blessed, you get me. And that's kind of as deep as it goes, right? We're not, we're not real big on this loyal to my mom and dad thing, right? Um, uh, and, and vice versa, right? It's not an ex- expectation. But Jesus says not only do you have to hate your family, he says you have to hate your own life. Okay, now for us, this strikes a lot closer to home, right? We may not be loyal to mom and dad, but I am loyal to me, right? I, uh, I am the place where my allegiance and loyalty lies. And he says, you have to hate your family. If you're in the East, if you're in the West, you have to hate yourself, right? You have to give up your rights to things, your duty and obligation to self. Right? You must come, as it were, to hate your life. And again, it's not that you are self-loathing. Um, but that you are no longer lord over your own life. You're shifting your allegiance from self to Jesus. Um, Third one, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Uh, The cross is a symbol of suffering and shame and ultimately death. A short message is simply this, that um, if, you, if you choose to follow Christ, um, if, you, if you become a Christian, it's risky business. Okay? And, the, and, and you, you risk facing persecution, suffering, rejection, abandonment. Right? We see it in, in Thailand and many other places around Asia where people who come to Christ are kicked out of their family. Or worse, they are drug out and killed. Right? Uh, where churches can be burned, as is happening uh, in places around the world, right? where Christians are put in jail, where they are persecuted. Right? So Jesus says you've got to be willing to embrace that kind of suffering and persecution. Right? So those, those are the, the costs, those are the price, those are the things Jesus says we must be willing to pay or to do if we're be, to be a disciple. Now, how is that not works? Well, here's the picture. Okay, let's see if we can understand what Jesus is saying. He is not saying that we need to go out and find some way to suffer in order to follow him. Right? So if you're in the, in the West where your family's not going to hate you and where people are not going to persecute you, nobody's going to burn down your house, you don't have to create ways to suffer in order to get saved. Right? This is the Irish. When the gospel first came to the Irish, they were bummed because they were the first people in the world to come to Christ without persecution, right? And they were depressed because they were crazy people, right? They were just crazy. And they were bummed that nobody was trying to kill them for Jesus, right? So what they did is they, they created, they invented this thing called green martyrdom, right? Uh, it had nothing to do with eating yogurt. Okay, it was... What it meant was they would go out and they would give up their life and they would go off into the jungle and live in seclusion and sacrifice their life kind of as a living sacrifice at one level um, to, to prove their devotion to Jesus, right? Because they, they felt you've got you, you to sacrifice something. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Okay, as noble what, this, what they did was. Okay, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. If you are going to come to Christ, there are there are obstacles that, that can very easily prevent you from, from really following me. And one of those could be your family. 
They may stand up in opposition to you following Christ. And they may say to you, if you follow Jesus, we will disown you. We will hate you. We will kick you out. And you've got to be willing to say, Jesus is more important than the loyalty and love of my family. I will sacrifice. I I will forsake that because I will not allow my family to prevent me from coming to Christ. I think it's an important message as we share the gospel with Thai people that they need to understand that that is the cost. You want to come to Jesus, your family will probably reject you, and you need to be uh, willing to make that sacrifice because Jesus is more important than the loyalty of your family. Right? Uh, your own life may get in the way. And how many times do we share the gospel with the people more in the West who, who say things like, well, I think I, I like it, I believe it, I think it's true, but I don't want to make the lifestyle change that would be required if I follow Jesus. Right? I know that following Jesus means I'm going to have to give up the sin and junk in my life, and I don't want to. Right? And uh, sadly, the church has tried to water down the gospel and said, well, that's okay, you don't need to do that. Right? You just get saved, and you can, because grace covers it all. You don't have to change your lifestyle. Jesus says, no, you do. <laughs> you do, right? and you will. And it will change if you follow Christ, if you come to him for salvation. Um, if you're in a context which most of us aren't, where uh, suffering is, is a reality, you cannot let that be an obstacle that prevents you from pursuing Christ. You need to decide you're going you're to follow Jesus, you're going to come to him, you're going to be a Christian, even if it means suffering and death. Uh, again, for most of us, that's not a threat. And sadly, you know, the sacrifice some people are afraid to make is that they'll lose television or something. You know, I mean, we, we, we are fearful of losing the slightest little comforts to follow Jesus, much less um, true suffering. So, so I, I think what Jesus is saying here is this, is it's not that we can be saved by extreme devotion, uh, that we sacrifice family and all that, but rather he's just saying uh, these are obstacles that can stand between you and faith. And you must decide that Jesus is worth more than those things. Right? Uh, that you will be a follower of him and you will not let those things stand in your way. And he follows that, uh, that point up with two illustrations. And let me read those again. Uh, I'll read the first one. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to laugh at him, mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Um, and th- this is where I, I kind of part ways with the commentaries, okay? So this is where you can really, you know, scrutinize very closely what I say and check it against Scripture. Um, how this normally gets interpreted is this that if you want to follow Jesus, you want to be a real disciple. You need to have true grit. Okay, who here knows what true grit is? Okay, the five of you raising your hand are old enough to have seen the movie. And you know John Wayne. The rest of you do not know the movie True Grit, and you probably don't even know John Wayne, which is unfortunate. Because he is like living true grit. So for those of you who, you know, grew up on Google and not John Wayne, here's the Google definition. Grit is defined as 
perseverance and passion for long-term goals. Individuals who possess zeal and persistence of motive and effort. Okay. And this is, this is how this usually gets taught it, it, as people unpack this passage, is that what Jesus is saying here is it's, it's costly to follow him. And so what Jesus is looking for is a few good men, right? The few, the proud, the Marines, right? The tough guys, right? If you want to follow Jesus, you better be prepared to spit nails and walk on fire. Because Jesus wants people with grit, right? With determination, with fierce and stubborn zeal, okay? Jesus is not about messing around with wimps and, and sissies, right? If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be a real man, right? None of this weakling stuff, right? It takes grit. It takes commitment, right? And so Jesus is saying, you want to get saved, you better be willing to just die for Jesus right now, okay? Well, um, I don't think that's what it's saying. And here's partly why. Uh, first of all, Jesus just got done saying, talking about the invitation to the banquet, right? And the first group of people didn't come into the banquet. So who does Jesus, who does Jesus send uh, to go out and find and invite? The Marines, the Navy SEALs, right? The Green Berets, the John Waynes. No. Who does he ask to invite? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Okay. These are not people who have true grit. Okay. They are people who by inherent definition are weak. Right. They're weak. They're not the people you put, you know, guns in and send out to, you know, take over the world because they're so tough, right? It's not, that's, not, that's not the kind of people Jesus is inviting in, right? On top of that, uh, it's really contrary to what the gospel is, right? The very heart and essence of the gospel is not that we get saved because we're strong and tough and able, Okay, the heart and soul of the gospel is that Jesus saves people who are weak, who know their spiritual poverty, right? Who are the blind and the naked and the poor, the destitute, the desperately needy? Right? If Jesus is saying here, if you want to get saved, you just got to be tough. You got to be, you got to have true grit. Then there's some disconnect with the whole rest of what Scripture teaches on what it means to be saved. And to follow Christ. Um, the next story. Maybe the next story will clear things up for us. For which of you... Um, uh, no, I already did that one. Um, next one. What, what if you... Um, what king going out to encounter another in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He two stories that talk about really the same thing. And in both stories, this is the picture. First one, it's a person wants to build a tower. What, what is a tower? Well, uh, this is not just a lookout tower to enjoy the flowers, okay? It was a guard tower. It was a picture of somebody who, wants, who has a large estate or property or house or maybe a vineyard. And they want to secure and protect it from robbers and thieves and from destruction by building a, a large tower and a, a wall around their possessions. It's a picture of really building a fortress, right? And uh, we think of that kind of belonging to kings. But in this day, people with, you didn't have to be a king, but if you were fairly wealthy and you had a lot to protect, you would want to build a, 
a strong fortress to protect yourself. It says, so you, you want to you fortify your life. But first you need to sit down and see if you have the resources and the strength to bring the project to completion. Because if not, you're going to get the project half done, and it will not protect you. And on top of that, all your friends and neighbors are going to laugh at you as being an idiot and a fool. Because you started a project you could not finish. You could not bring to completion. Um, and see, the question here is, we are to count the cost. But what are we the counting the cost of? Well, usually it's defined as counting the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Do I have the strength and power I need to follow Christ? But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, do you have the strength and power? Do you have the resources to be successful in life? Do you in and of yourself have what it takes to protect yourself, to fortify all your possessions, and to complete the project so that you don't end in utter failure? Where would you assess your life, right? As you stack up your resources and your abilities and your wisdom and your power, can you build a fortress around your life that's indestructible, and can you finish it? Well, I know when I was 14 years old and I was not a believer, and I looked at my life, all I could see in every single direction was failure. And I was super depressed about it, right? Uh, I knew that there was nothing about my life that could meet with success. I had assessed, I had counted the cost, and I realized I was way short, way short. Second one, a king uh, is invaded by another army, and he needs to defend his kingdom. So again, it's, a, it's another picture of defense, of protection, of securing your life. Uh, so he counts his soldiers, and he counts their soldiers, Right? He says, okay, give me the good news and the bad news. He says, well, the good news is you have 10,000 soldiers. Yay. The bad news, well, they have 20,000. <laughs> Not a good sign, right? And uh, can you do this? Can you wage war with half the army? When you are vastly outnumbered, what are your, what are your odds of success? Well, not very good, right? It's not very good. But in this parable, unlike the first one, the first one, the guy just ends up looking stupid. This one, the king gets to make choices. And the choice is this. Knowing you do not have the resources you need, knowing you don't have what's required, do you go and fight the battle and go down in a blaze of glory? Or stupidity, right? Or do you go out and make terms of peace? Do you send a peace delegation out to that other king and you say to him, You'll, I, there's no way I can win. Right? There's no way I can beat you. There's no way I can protect myself. I surrender to you. What are the terms of peace? Right? Now, this is how it works with terms of peace. When you're outnumbered and you're surrendering and you know you can't win, you don't get to name the terms of peace. You don't get to say, I'll tell you what, if you just get off my land and leave me alone, I'm not going to call you bad names. I'm not going to throw rocks at you, right? Uh, uh, in fact, I'll write a nice article about you in the newspaper about what a good guy you are, right? Well, you don't get to call, you don't get to name the terms of peace when you're the loser, right? And and the way it would work in these in this time in in these Jesus day is you would go and the king would say, "Here's the terms of peace. You surrender everything to me. 
I now become king over your land. You get to be just the vassal lord who pays me taxes and who manages my land, right? If you don't manage my land well, I kill you. You don't pay enough taxes, I kill you. If you give your loyalty and allegiance to any other king, I kill you. Okay, does it sound like a good deal to you? Oh, yeah, it sounds like a great deal because I live, right? I lose everything, but I live, right? And my life goes on, right? Uh, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, so what is he saying? He's saying, well, when you assess your life, do you have what it takes to be successful? Do you have what it takes to finish the course? Do you have what it takes to win and defeat your enemies? Well, I think the answer he's looking for is, no, I don't. Right? My life is not adequate. I do not have within myself the resources to win, the resources to succeed, the resources for my life to count. Well, in that case, what do you do? Well, you go to your enemy, or in this case, to him. You go to God, and you make terms of peace. Right? You say to God, I can't win. I can't succeed. I can't fight against you. I can't protect and secure my own life. Right? So I come to you, and I ask for terms of peace. Right? And Jesus says, this is the terms of peace. If you do not hate your father and mother and brother and sister and children and wife, you cannot be my disciple. If you do not hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. If you're not willing to take up your cross and suffer and sacrifice for me, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, um, you have to come to a place where you realize that Jesus is your only hope. Jesus is the only answer. Uh, and we must choose 100% loyalty to him. Right? He gets to take over everything. But we get to live out of the deal. Right? We get life. We get life. Um, and Jesus summarizes, in verse 33, Jesus summarizes it this way. He says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce or forsake or give up all that he has cannot be my disciple. Um, I think it's unfortunate that most of the Bibles translate the word there, cannot, because it makes it sound like this. It makes it sound like Jesus won't allow it. Like Jesus is in, in heaven and he is um, gauging your life and he's looking at the level of your commitment. And if it's not 100%, he just won't allow you to, to follow him. But that's really not what he's saying. The word is literally, you're not able to. And there's a difference between cannot and not able to. Not able to means this. It means that until we have counted the cost and realized that we fall uh, terribly short of what it takes for our life to matter, for our life to have joy or happiness or success, for us to achieve true peace with God and with man, right? The reality is we will not be able to follow Christ because we will pursue the answer in other places. Okay, you got that? We will look for the solutions in places other than Jesus. Let me illustrate it from the life of, Pe of Peter. Right? Before the cross, 
right right before, not long before uh, the Last Supper, right? we don't know exactly when, but they're debating um, how willing the disciples would be to sacrifice for Jesus. Uh, and Jesus, they're kind of talking about true grit, right? They're talking about, you know, you're going to make the sacrifice to follow me. And Jesus says, you won't, right? He says to them all, you will all deny me. You will all fall away because you don't have what it takes. What does Peter say? Oh, I have what it takes, right? I am a man of true grit. I live my life modeled after John Wayne. I saw the movie, right? I have true grit, right? I'll die for you, Jesus. Uh, and even in the garden when the soldiers come, who takes out his sword? Talking about, talking about outnumbered. Peter against like, the whole Roman battalion. What does he do? He goes whacking off people's ears, right? Jesus says, okay, hold the bus, right? Put the sword away. You're, you're going to hurt people. People could die here, right? So just put the sword away. But in the, in, the, in the courtyard, it's a different case with Peter, right? Jesus is now bound, and he's on trial, and he's about to be crucified. And a, a little servant girl says, oh, you're, you're one of Jesus' followers. And what, is, what does Peter say? I never knew him. I never knew him. Uh, Peter thought he had true grit. And if it takes true grit, right, we're in trouble. Because while the desire is there, when it comes to the reality of carrying through on it, he failed. But I love in John chapter 21, after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter and he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you have true grit? Not what he says, is it? What does he say? Simon, son of John... Do you love me? Do you love me? Right? Is your love for me greater than all these other things? Your desire to follow me, to be my child, to be with me, to be in fellowship with me, do you long for me more than all this other stuff? And Peter says, yes. Right? See, that's, that's the difference. And that's what Jesus is teaching here, I believe. It's not that we have to give up those things. It's that when we're faced with the choice, is our love and desire for Jesus greater because we know we desperately need him, greater than the loves for the things in this world? Are we willing to pursue Jesus at all costs because we know he is the only thing in our life that will make a difference? Jesus sums it up this way with another rather cryptic illustration that oftentimes is misunderstood. But it kind of ties it all together. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste or its flavor, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. So it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And uh, honestly, I, I, I don't have ears and I don't get this, right? We read this like, whoever heard of salt that's not salty, right? Uh, how does that even happen? Well, here, here's the history of it all. Back in those days, they didn't have salt like we have. They got most of their salt from the Dead Sea. And their salt was actually not pure salt. It was salt mixed in with a bunch of other minerals, gypsum and other things. And... Uh, because you didn't go to Lotus and buy it, you know, when you ran out. You would go down to the Dead Sea maybe once a year, and you would fill your wheelbarrow, your cart full of salt, of this, this compound, and you would bring it home, and you would use it for all kinds of stuff. 
But over time, as it sat out wherever, the moisture, the rain, the humidity would, would actually suck, would dissolve the salt out. And what you'd, get, what you'd end up with after many months was, was basically chalk dust, right? So it's kind of what he's saying. So if your salt has lost its salt and all that's left is chalk dust, how many of you like putting that on your steak? Oh, yum, right? Let's have that, you know, that spoonful of chalk dust. Yum, right? What good is chalk dust? Well, it was so worthless, you couldn't even use it. You couldn't even use it for fertilizer. It wasn't even good enough to put in the manure pile. Right? This is how worthless it is. So what's the point? Well, the point is uh, our life was created for a purpose like salt. And that, that salt is to bring flavor. It's to, it's to have a quality about it that makes it good. Um, like salt, what is our purpose? Well, our purpose is to bring glory to God. We were, Psalm says, we were created for God's glory. Now, if that's what you were made for, uh, if whatever quality about your life is no longer able to give God glory, what worth is there to your life? Well, this, Jesus says in this parable that your life becomes utterly worthless. It's not good enough to be manure. Right? Um, that's putting you pretty low. Right? Um, you become like less than worm food. You don't become worms. You become less than worm food. Right? That is a life that is not capable of bringing glory to God. What is the salt in our life? Well, the, the quality, the property that gives us a life that can bring glory to God is Jesus himself. Right? It is Christ filling us, Christ coming in with us, into us, Christ cleansing and forgiving us that makes our life salty, that makes our life able to accomplish its purpose to please and delight and glorify God. Basically, Jesus is saying this. Uh, either you follow me because you recognize that the only way your life will have meaning and value and significance the only way you will have any worth as a person is if you follow me all out. Or you let these other things interfere and prevent you from coming to me and your life becomes utterly worthless. Utterly worthless. Right? Uh, back in the mid-1800s in the United States, uh, they had a couple different gold rushes, different times. And uh, when I lived in Colorado, I saw a lot of the remnants as I'd hike through the mountains. And you go up to these high peaks, and there's all kinds of junk left over from uh, these guys uh, chasing after gold. And you get to some of these high mountains, there's no roads, and you think about these guys back in the 1800s with a mule or whatever, dragging these really heavy motors and metalworks up these mountains. It's like, man, those guys were crazy, right? Crazy. And they would, they would endure incredible winters and freezing cold and avalanches. They left their families behind because no wife would go follow their husband chasing gold, right? They're like, honey, you know, come back with the treasure, but until then you're on your own. I'm not going with you, right? They forsook families. They forsook friends. They never took baths, so they had no friends, right? And they lived on beans, right? They sacrificed, right? Great sacrifice, they did it joyfully. Why? Because they believed that they were going to strike it rich and find gold. Right? And about 2% of them did. The rest of them, 
didn't work out so well. But it was worth it, and they were willing to make those sacrifices because they knew, they knew that what they would gain was far greater. Well, let me just apply this passage this way. We know that we are to make sacrifices, that there is a cost of discipleship. Do you make that cost as a martyr or as a prospector? That's what they call those guys chasing gold, prospectors. The sad thing is a lot of people view the Christian life as a life of martyrdom, where, you know, this is just the price of admission. You've got to be miserable. And we figure, well, we're supposed to be miserable, so I'm going to embrace misery, right? And I'm going to endure, and I'm going to be a martyr, and I'm going to feel really sorry for myself, right? Because that's what it, Jesus asked, so that's what I'm going to do. Woe is me, right? I'm going to go to Thailand, be a missionary. I'm going to suffer all I can, right? And, and pat myself on the back for what a, what a poor martyr I am. And, and that must be what this passage means, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Jesus is saying something very, very different. He's saying, yes, it could cost you dearly to follow me. It could cost you family relationships. It, it will cost you your own selfish lifestyle. Uh, it could bring suffering into your life and hardship and difficulty. But am I worth it? That's what he's saying. Is Jesus worth everything to you? Because you know he is what will bring purpose and meaning and fulfillment into your life. He and he alone. Right? He says, you see, if you don't come to that place, you, you are not able to follow. Because unless Jesus is the only thing, the only thing, then you will start looking in other places right, for the answers and for the solutions. You will give your loyalty and love to other things. It is in Christ alone that we have uh, life. And the result should be uh, a life of joyful sacrifice, of joyfully celebrating all that we have in him. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.